Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. And this time we present the third of our Resist-themed plays. This is War Pig by Naomi Westerman, all the way from London, England. The cast of characters is Ruth Merman, played by Rachel Lampert, and Ethel Greenfield, played by Rachel Hockett. The setting is Florida, the heart of Trump country, at an extremely expensive resort community. We begin at a senior's yoga class. <laughs> Ethel, I bet I can get my leg over my head. Why would you want to do that? You never know when it'll come in handy. For what, when the cat drags one of your socks under the couch? Keep telling yourself that, Ethel. Put on your dancing shoes. Cha-cha Latin dance will be starting in the Reagan gazebo in 10 minutes. And remember that tonight's clam bake is strictly virgin only. So bring a bottle of your favorite soft drink. A virgin anything in a place like this? What is this, a kindergarten? Sorry, sorry, back to downward dog. Oh, I don't think I have any bottles of soft drink. I can lend you a juice box. Grape or orange? Spiked with vodka. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be getting trouble again, Ruth. Allow an old lady her fun. You got us kicked out of aqua aerobics. The sign-up sheet said, dress code whatever you feel most comfortable in. (laughs) I was very comfortable. (laughs) The rest of us weren't. The doctor says, my hip is doing a lot better. You probably shouldn't try putting your leg behind your head. I'll give it a while. Super Splash Sunday Fun Day Aqua Aerobics. Now move to Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll be starting in 10 minutes in the East Pool. (laughs) Can't miss that. I don't know, Ruth. It's just not as super fun since they moved it from Sunday. What the heck is warriatry? I think I'll sit that one out. The planning committee for our Make America Great Barbecue and Potluck will be meeting in the Casino Cafe at 3 p.m. Anyone interested in volunteering for the decoration subcommittee is invited to pop along where there will be complimentary gluten-free brownies. My sister in Brooklyn called me. Does she still live in that brownstone? Keeps telling me to move back, help with the grandkids. Maybe I should. And leave me alone? Who's talking? Miss Hollywood? You spend more time away than you do here. That's not true. Two visits I made home last year, two. And one to Santa Monica. Santa Monica is still Hollywood. You don't know what you're talking about. You've got L.A. You've got the valley, the hills. We lived in the hills. Everyone lives in the hills. And the beach. Hollywood is Hollywood. It's tourists and lowlifes. Yeah, and your husband made his fortune on those tourists and lowlifes. We both did. I helped him build that company. What did you say to your sister? I'll visit for the holidays. Her daughter took her to this meeting. She's a feminist. Aren't we all? I guess. I was in the 60s. (laughs) You were everything in the 60s, from what I hear. From what I can remember. They're into those women's marches against the Cheeto. Good for them. Would you march? I was if I was in New York, sure. I miss New York. We could march. What? Fly to New York. We could go to Macy's and the Russian Tea Room after. It's not a vacation. 
We can't fly to New York to march. We could march here. Where? Miami? Tampa? Right here. They'd never allow it. Well, I guess not. No one here cares about politics. They all voted for him. They'd stop us. I can picture it now. Oh, Ruth, oh, Ethel, why do you always have to be such troublemakers and bring disharmony into our idyllic community? Would you like a slice of pie? When you first moved in, did they all bring you pies? Her with a big red and white wicker basket? Uh-huh, two apple, one rhubarb, one chocolate meringue. You know that basket? It's where she keeps her gun when she's at home, in case of intruders, you know. And we say they're not political. They're always telling us to get more involved with the community. Well, you ran for the residence board one time. After I painted my front door hot pink. They nearly kicked me out. <laughs> my son had to get on the phone and practically cry. You know, there are some nice women in beginner's ballet. They go to Miami sometimes. Beginner's ballet for women? What? You think men don't want to learn ballet? I don't want to be in a leotard in front of men. I do. This march, do you think we could? A women's march here? It wouldn't have to be political. We voted Republican in the 80s. It's about women's rights. It's not a bipartisan issue. Everyone should care about women's rights. Yeah. I bet there are a lot of women here who would march. Especially if we pretend we're speed walking. <laughs> Why are you so hot on this marching? They sent this young guy, blonde, blue-eyed, around to fix the bidet. Ooh. Yeah, he, he was listening to gangster rap. All B-word and N-word and look at my drinking my henny in the club. He asked me why I was wearing a star necklace. Was I into astrology? Told me he was a Pisces. <laughs> Young people. I turned NPR up as far as it would go. There was a news story about the Anne Frank Center slamming Trump. When the Anne Frank Center has a beef with you, you know something's wrong. Beef? Who'd have thought the Anne Frank Center and the National Park Service would be the ones to lead the resistance? The guy switched his music off and listened, all respectful. And then, as he turns to go, he says, That Anne chick sounds real smart, but she got too skinny for that French movie. I was born in Hungary. Did I ever tell you that? No. You never did. My parents got out of Europe long before it got dangerous. Mine didn't. I grew up in New York City. Scene two, the retirement community outdoors. It is a beautiful, sunny, perfect Florida day. Ethel and Ruth are marching. Tiny hands off our rights. Tiny hands off our rights. I was right. People here don't care. You'd think at least one or two would show up. Even if it was just to gawk at us marching. Passive resistance. How Gandhi of them. Miriam came around this morning. <laughs> Did she bring a pie? She kept asking me if I was keeping busy. Invited me to her knit to make America great again potluck. What is someone named Miriam doing supporting Trump? She might not be. She is. Wonder how long that will last. I have this feeling we're being watched. Let them stare. Curtain twitchers. No, no, not stared at. Watched. I keep seeing things in that shadow. It's probably a dog. Off leash here. 
I do hope we are not offending anyone. Tiny hands off our rights. Tiny hands off our rights. No grabbing this pussy. Can we say pussy in public? Sure, it means cat. I have a cat. You know it doesn't mean cat. I wanted to knit us some of those little pink hats, but my arthritis was playing up. I didn't know you knit. There's a lot about me that you don't know, my friend. I had an abortion once. I had two. I had a fun time in college. I wasn't a girl. I was 33. Married. The studio was doing well. It's okay. We already had our son, and I loved him, but I felt like I was going to die after he was born, and I, I, I didn't want to have another baby. Are you okay? Yeah. That shadow is moving again. Maybe it's the welcome committee with more pies. Hey, look at that. Hello. I like your dress. Hi, sweetheart. Are you lost? Are you visiting your grandma and grandpa? What? Do you like our signs? You can look at them. It's okay. Would you like to hold it? Take the sign, sweetheart. Can you read it? It says... Girls rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> that was War Pig by Naomi Westerman. Ruth was played by Rachel Lampert, and Ethel was played by Rachel Hockett. Naomi was kind enough to give us a few moments of her time to talk about this play and her work as a theater artist. And we decided to go, as we usually do, uh, with the obvious question, and that is... Considering the nature of the times that we live in at this particular point and the political situation that affects most of the world, we kind of ask the obvious question, where did this play come from? This is not a good origin story. It came about as a, through an in-joke in a writing class. I'm writing for a, a program called Write to Play, which uh, pairs six disabled writers at the moment. And uh, we were talking about the play War Horse, someone who was involved in the creation of Warhorse came in and was talking to us and said that after the success of that play, there were a lot of uh, scripts submitted that were along similar lines, but, you know, war other animals. And someone just said war pig and somehow it just turned into a big running joke. And so I, I basically started with the title because I just thought, you know, I've got to write a play called War Pig. Um, and then, well, obviously Donald Trump got elected and it just seemed like, well, he's obviously the war pig, but I don't really want to write a play about Donald Trump because I don't want to, you know, aggrandize him or give him a platform. So right. what would be an interesting slant to kind of write something that was female centric? Because I mostly write all female or female centric work that's kind of looking at Donald Trump. And then a lot of other things kind of happened at the same time. The women's marches obviously were happening uh, earlier this year. Um, and I have been sort of exploring a lot more about my own history, which is that I come from a, a Jewish refugee family. And I just thought it would be really interesting to explore what it would be like to be an elderly Jewish woman living in an area that is very Trump loving, that's not not violent, not, you know, sort of Charlotte mm -hmm. yeah. kind of neo-Nazis, you know, an area where everyone's very nice, but everyone's wearing Make America great again hats like what would that feel like and how would you respond to being in that situation yeah it's uh my uh in-laws 
um, mm. lived in a, a community in Florida, which is, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm going to say it's somewhat similar to that. Um, <laughs> most of the retirees had come from corporations and therefore they had, you know, a certain Republican view on things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it can get a little, uh, tricky when you start discussing something like that, at least here. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Opinions get extremely divided, and conversation uh, does not progress in an intellectual growing manner as one might hope. Um, what did uh, what was the reception like in in London for this thing? Because uh, I'm I'm actually kind of curious of what uh, most folks think about the situation, or at least about you know uh, the play itself. Um, the response was very very positive. Um, we did it as a rehearsed reading at a theatre called the Belgrade Theatre, which is in Coventry, just outside, uh, some distance from London. Uh, everyone found it very funny. Um, I feel politically... Theatre is not very pro-Trump. Mm. <laughs> England is... There aren't very many Trump supporters in England. I mean, we have our own issues with uh, Brexit, obviously, being a, a highly contentious political topic. But Trump, in general, I think, you know, you're kind of not going to go too far wrong dissing Donald Trump here. So the response... Yeah, the response was very good, although a lot of people... There were some very specific kind of cultural things that the the, the British audience didn't necessarily quite understand. I mean, even just things like calling him the Cheeto. You know, there are a few people who were like, we don't know what that means. Um, And a few people were like, we thought this was written by an American and were confused as to why an English playwright would write a play that is so American. Well, I I thought so, too, originally, because I didn't take note of, of where the play had come from. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's got a distinctive uh, American flair. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. I've never actually been to Florida, so uh, it's a big compliment if people feel that it has some authenticity to it. Okay, so you mentioned you write female-centric and sometimes all-female work, um, <laughs> and this is from your website. It says uh, that it seeks to tell stories of people who are often marginalized in mainstream media, mm-hmm. and I want to discuss that, um, but I do want to at least just throw out there that the people who are probably not marginalized in mainstream media are maybe one, two different categories and the rest seem to be pushed to the sides. I mean, if you're not white male, then you have an issue. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And I do feel that in the debate about equality, which is obviously very important, there's a lack of intersectionality. I mean, there's a lot being talked about right now about, um, uh, the lack of gender equality in playwriting, but it's it, it, it even the debate about gender equality mm-hmm. marginalizes women of color. It marginalizes people with disabilities, and like right now, I'm doing a lot of work with um, a disabled theatre company, but it's like their focus is just people with disability, and there just isn't any intersectionality in terms of looking at if you're a member of more than one minority group, you know, it's very, and like I was talking about this with some other playwriting friends a couple of days ago, you will meet theatres who specifically say, you know, our minority interest is this particular group. Like we'd love to do more with disability, but our focus is women or our focus is gay people or our focus is ethnic minorities. And it's like, why do you have to pick one minority group and focus on them. Why can't it just be about making theatre more equal in general? I want to talk about more about your work. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, since we're talking about you know uh, all female work or marginalized in mainstream media, I notice going through a lot of your plays, uh, you con- definitely concentrate on female centric. Let's. Um, mm-hmm. Where did this? I mean, where did the voice start to come from when you first started writing, uh, rather than let's say writing for a mainstream, which you know might give you more opportunities for you know production that sort of thing. Writing specifically for a, I'm going to say political agenda, which may not be the right term for it, but um, I well, I didn't really say I didn't really make the decision to be a playwright. I I wrote my first play. Um, my first play was about women uh, in a psychiatric hospital, and I wrote that play because I had a good friend who had been sectioned. I, I don't know if that's an Amer- like a term that Americans understand, but basically, you know forcibly sort of committed to a psychiatric hospital. Um, And I went to visit her while she was living in the psychiatric hospital. And it just felt like something that was really urgent and something that I needed to, to talk about and to write about. And at um, at the time this was happening, I was doing my master's degree and my dissertation was about the gendering of mental illness. And I was also sort of working in theater um, and it just felt like I want to write a play about this. So I wrote a play without any intention of saying, you know, oh, I want to become a playwright. I just wanted to write that one play. And then I had a very positive reaction to it from the industry. And people started, you know, being very encouraging towards me and kind of, you know, offering me jobs or offering me sort of other opportunities or very small commissions. And so I just sort of almost became a playwright almost by accident. And I never really, I don't really think very much about whether my work is commercial. And I think I've been very fortunate to be working in the British theatre industry, which is, you know, relatively well subsidised. You know, it's not very difficult to get your work put on. You know, there are lots of opportunities here. Um, I think I'm going to move to England. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with I mean, you know, arts funding in Britain is in crisis, and that's quite a big problem. But I, we are still very privileged to be able to have the the, the publicly subsidised theatres that we have. I think it's um, in a much better situation yeah. than we have here. Yeah, and the emphasis on new writing. I mean, there are a lot of theatres that focus on new writing, and that's really wonderful. I, I think it's an extremely wonderful thing. It's it's the expression of the human soul, the creativity. And I think one of the reasons that we don't have uh, such a flourishing culture over here is because people are afraid it'll make people think. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, thinking is usually what causes trouble. Um, so let's move from thinking to being pushy, because I was <laughs> reading your blog, and yeah. I absolutely fell in love with your last post. And I'm, I'm going to read a section from it. <laughs> Okay. And I, I would I would like you to expound on this because it's it's wonderful. I think this is from your September 9th post and it's called mm-hmm. In Praise of Pushy Women. Quote, I was raised in a way that is perceived as stereotypically quite male. My father was a mathematician. My family numbers several scientists. And I was taught maths and encouraged into science and engineering related play. That is Lego building robots, etc. From literally the crib onwards. I was allowed to dress however I wanted and within reason do whatever I wanted, which was mostly building things and running around exploring and climbing trees. My school encouraged my aptitude for maths, science, and engineering, and because I didn't have anyone trying to censor me, I never put limits on my own ambitions or personality. 
I was fortunate to grow up completely unaware that these were considered, quote, not girl things, unquote, or that my personality was, is not, quote, feminine. I grew up thinking there were no boundaries on my ability to achieve. Now, you start this off with, I called myself pushy, which got quite an interesting reaction. What was the reaction? I feel that pushy is a word that a lot of people perceive as being quite derogatory. Uh, it's not acceptable to kind of call someone pushy or to call yourself pushy. People sort of almost feel like you're being almost sexist against yourself. Like, you, oh, you shouldn't call yourself that. You should call yourself ambitious or you should call yourself, you know, a, a more positive word. But I just think it's a word, you know, like it's almost a sense of reclaiming it. Because men don't get called pushy, you know? Men would be called ambitious or forceful. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting to kind of reclaim words that are used in such a gendered way. Are there other words that you would like to see used in addition to pushy? Because it does have a, it, it does have, I'm, I'm going to say, sort of an, an almost obnoxious connotation to it. Um, I've never been afraid to be a little bit obnoxious, you know? I kind of feel like... You know, sometimes you have to just smash down walls and sometimes you have to be not afraid of offending people. Um, but other words, uh, I'm perfectly happy with ambitious. Um, I'm happy with successful, hopefully. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with opinionated is a word that I'm quite keen on. I like that Any one. Of those. Yeah. I like all the words, actually. It's, I was baiting you a little bit there, but pushy is a good word. And it's, it's, as you said, in order to get somewhere, you have to make things happen a bit. And nothing really happens to people who stand around and wait for something to be given to them. Mm -hmm. right? Change only comes through people who are willing to be a little obnoxious, upset the status quo deliberately change my my, my favorite t-shirt quote here the dominant paradigm so to speak yeah yeah and it's not always an easy road little bit fierce theater yes which you are involved with you uh, i believe you're a co-founder uh yeah about let's see four years ago uh i co-founded an all-female theater company um Originally, uh, we weren't creating uh, new writing. Originally, we were doing um, Shakespeare adaptations because my background is in classical theatre and we've since segued into also doing new work. Yeah, we founded in, uh, let's see, 2013. How many productions have you had? Oh, we've had, I think, four sort of main productions and then we've also done kind of small, you know, sort of one-offs, kind of rehearsed readings and scratch nights and things like that. Gotcha. How many people in the organisation? It's very small. I mean, it's like five people. And then obviously people come in and out as freelancers, you know, directors and people. Sure. Do you have your own space? Uh, we have a space that we have usage of, but we don't have like our own space. Okay. Well, Naomi, it has been a thrill to speak with you. And I'm so very, very glad you submitted Warpig because we love it here. And so very glad to have uh, spoken with you today. Yeah. Wonderful to speak to you. Thank you very much. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. 
Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't yet covered, oddly enough, or know someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Onstage Offstage wishes to let its listeners know that we believe in and advocate for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace, without fear. We believe in zero tolerance for acts of hate and bigotry. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender orientation. On Stage Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 